Welcome everybody, Jude Gold here. It's episode 138 of No Guitar Is Safe, The Guitar Show, where guitar heroes plug in and, wow, plugging in today, a true hero of guitar, especially jazz guitar, although his music spans so many more realms than just one genre. Julian Lage, spectacular young player. I definitely remember him as a young player because didn't get a chance to tell him this, but the first time I heard of him, well, it was a funny call working at Guitar Player Magazine, sponsor of today's episode, by the way. When I was full-time there, which was like 2001 through 2009, got a call one year about 2005, but it wasn't from a guitar player. It wasn't from a guitar player's publicist. It was from the great jazz vibraphonist, Gary Burton, great educator as well. And he, well, it's actually an email, I think, and he was just raving about not his own music per se or anything like that but about this young guitar player he had met probably a student at berkeley of his at that time the kid was probably 17 or 18 he's about 33 years old now for today's interview and we are of course talking about julian lodge i don't even think i talked to julian back then but i did a little story on gary or something well now flash forward here we are 2021 almost halfway through this year can you believe it Music is returning, and it's just great to have Julian on the show because he has just bloomed as a, as a jazz voice or a guitar voice or a musician's voice who happens to go through the guitar. This is a sample from today's episode, which you're going to hear. Yeah, that's Julian performing for you. The interesting thing is this piece is 100% improvised. phenomenal the stuff that Julian improvises and you know I'm gonna ask him like what is improvisation can it be learned are there tactics one can take to become a better improviser who better to ask than Julian who by the way has an incredible new album coming out June 11th I've been listening to all the tracks four of them are public now on Spotify etc iTunes on Blue Note Records. It's called Squint, coming out June 11th. We're going to get into the four tracks that are already released, which you should go check out, and Julian's going to get into some of those for us. And we're going to get right to it. By the way, I have a new track. I got to say, people write me like, man, you got to promote yourself once in a while. And I really have hardly ever, but even Adam, who helped me create this show, Adam Johnson, he's like, man, you got to play a little sample of that new jam. So I do have a new jam, very different than Julian's new album. Mine is a, a little cover tune of uh, Blue Davidi, the famous jazz, the, the famous dance track. There's a little sample for you. It's on. Spotify, etc., iTunes, if you want to check it out, thank you. But right now, it's all about firing up this copter and seeing if we can get it to cruise across the country over to New York City. 
to hang out with Julian Lodge. Once again, I'm Jude Gold. Guitar Player Magazine made this possible. Guitar Player and GuitarPlayer.com. Play better, sound better. Thanks again for supporting the show. Keep it alive till you're 95. Thanks, man. Okay, you know, I know people always ask you about your name, but is it like a Lodge like or a soft G, Lodge? Uh, we say it Lodge with a soft G, yeah. but there are Lages and Lages in the world. It, it, yeah. it depends where you came up. Uh, the, the derivation for me is Portugal. That's where my father's uh, family is from. So it's in Portugal, they would say Lodge. So yesterday, after we tried to do this yesterday, folks, and... Uh, little zoom hassles all on my end not on julian's end but you are so patient thanks for doing it again today but in of the course. in that 24 hours i was just possessed by this notion of the strymon flint pedal that you apparently use so i went over to <laughs> sam ash and got one i love Great. that pedal and i curses to you for making me buy a 300 dollars pedal but i love that thing amazing do i hear that on saint rose maybe yeah totally That pedal is not only on St. Rose, but it's on the whole new record. I mean, I, I think I've been using the Flint for maybe five years or so. It's kind of, um, to me, uh, a, a perfect reverb pedal, you know, for a spring reverb for what I'm looking for. Um, and I find that it plays uh, really well musically with the amps I use. Everything from a Champ, like a Tweed Champ, to a Black Panel Deluxe or... Um, a brown deluxe or I mean really anything I, I, I always find that it, it, it suits my touch and, um, and and it records really well to me I, I think that's one of the things I like about it is it kind of sounds like a studio reverb uh, just in terms of its fidelity and clarity and its uh, and the, the ability to change the knobs I don't actually change them I've set the knobs the same way for since that the day I bought it yeah. um, but uh, absolutely it's a big part of my my sound <laughs> electrified sound anyone who hasn't used one it also has this delicious set of vibrato options too oh totally oh and then i, I should i point that out specifically to your question about saint rose is that that's i'm using the vibrato on that track um very subtly uh you know i don't have much of a history with vibrato or pedals but um the yeah it just it sounded like a good counterpart to the reverb that was being used yeah and um 
you have a really great room sound on your record too. Like, I don't know how much of that might be possibly the Flint or probably just some beautiful room where you guys are tracking it. It's a thank you, brother. It's a, it's, I appreciate that because I, I, I'm a nerd for reverb and that I think it's probably three reverbs. It's the Flint, it's the room, and, and then it's the plate in the room. Um, at Sound Emporium in Nashville, where we recorded it. So it's, yeah, it's it's kind of one of those cascading reverb phenomenons, you know. Uh, we gosh, and we try. There might even be a fourth reverb. I've always loved, you know, what I like man is the um, Bricasti reverb. You ever use that? It's like a, it's in a rack mount form. It's in a lot of studios, and there's one setting in it that is, uh, I believe, called Tom Waits' barn. And I think it might have actually been modeled off of that studio out in California, but that might be the fourth reverb that we tucked into the mix. Again, for that cascading kind of quality of when one ends, another one picks up with a slightly different quality and, and so on and so forth. So now you've uh, released four songs so far, I think, off the new album, Squint, yes. which is out June 11th, I believe. That's right. Nice of you guys to preview us with uh, four tracks. I'm finding them on Spotify myself, but I'm sure they're everywhere. And uh, Blue Note Records, first of all, congratulations on that. Thanks, man. Thank you. Three of these four songs are actually really interesting studies in double stops. I don't know if yeah. You I was thinking perhaps Etude. I don't know if you have any of that under your fingers at the moment, but. <laughs> you know, I could try. I could play the first part of that. Um, kind of a yeah, yeah, well, here's, here's just the general temperament of it. Uh, That's kind of the, the the intro to the piece, and then it, and it and then it goes goes from there. But to your question, yeah, that is a prime example of double stops being used to kind of. I think of them as it's almost like ear candy. You know, they function to just uh, I scramble the brain or scramble the ear, and you, and, and even when when I play it. Um, I can see my hands playing double stops, but to my ear, it kind of sometimes it sounds like more than two notes. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the balance of um, voices. So in other words, you have like, for example, you took the first part. I hear um, I hear that the, the top voice is being the leader. And then the, the, the second voice, the, the fifth below, just ever so slightly supports it but they're not equal and i think part of that comes from hybrid picking too so um what i'm the for anyone listening you can imagine that the low note for me i'm plucking with a plectrum and the high note i'm plucking with my middle finger and my the pluck of my finger is louder than the pluck of this the the pick um and then the next part the response to that Those are thirds that um, are played entirely with the pick. Um, to my ear, they sound more equal. More equal meaning the high note and the low note. So, so there's this conversation between, you know, a double stop isn't just a double stop. There are double stops where there's equal power in both voices. There's double stops where the high voice is louder. There's double stops where the low voice is louder. And if you have a passage, uh, or at least I think, where there's a combination of those balances, those different kind of uh, uh, you know, balancing acts. It sounds like a lot more than a double stop. It sounds like more than two notes. 
um, I just think it's endlessly fascinating, don't you? It's kind of like a just like a wild phenomenon. Yeah. Well, I never really thought about the different dynamics of which note am I going to play louder or softer within a double stop. I mean, for me, I think my first, I remember like... That's probably yeah. like the first real double stop would, that I remember. What, where did it start from you and where does it go with double stop? Like I hear everything now and there from like, you know, I hear some Baroque in there or some classical. Sure, sure. Well, you know, there's, oh goodness, <laughs> don't get me started. I mean, I think about double steps a lot and I have for a long time because um, if we just put aside the, how would I say it? The musical attributes of double stops, which is you could, you know, say a, a richness in harmony, a, a bigger sense of orchestration, uh, um, all of that. And you just look at it from a technical point of view, I've always found that double stops in many respects are easier to play on the guitar than a single note. And the reason I say that is a single note is one of, is obviously necessary <laughs> if we're playing the guitar, but, but also there's six strings, right? So in the process of playing a note, you know, let's say A on the D string, I have to not hit, and, and so every time we play a single note, there's a certain degree of omission, you know, you're playing it, you're not playing those, but you are playing that. Um, from a technical point of view, if there's room for double stops, let's say instead of that single note, instead of that single note, I play it and I add a fifth below it. Well, now I'm only, I only have to not hit that and right. And so there's something very relaxing to me about playing double stops because I, I don't have to be as precise as I would with a single line. And so to your, to your question, I think when I, years ago, I injured my left hand uh, playing guitar and I was playing so much for so long for, you know, 18 years straight. And my hand just kind of froze at one point. It was, it was so stiff. And one of the rehabilitation exercises that I learned from fellow guitar players, you know, who had experienced it and, and just kind of stumbled upon my, on my own was that you can play improvised passages where you kind of smush your fingers against the fingerboard. In other words, you give up accuracy. So if you have a hand injury, rather than trying to play or something that's more, I guess, uh, precious in terms of accuracy um my friends would say well just play like almost like a slop a whole slop of notes some are double stop triple stops just kind of play around i remember i would play passages just like you know and so just for context you know it's not in a key it's not in a tonality i'm not playing in tempo i'm literally just having a sensual experience with the left hand and it was extremely helpful in my recovery that's amazing yeah and you're, you're just kind of lazily doing some really relaxed little bars there sometimes getting some force bingo sometimes some thirds i guess on the one string yeah 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 you you just smush around you know i i grew up i grew up with a technique that i think kind of i, I think wasn't that um healthy in the long run. I, it was this pseudo Segovia um, derived technique that says you have to play on your fingertips and your left hand needs to be kind of like a, like you're holding an orange, you know, like a nice, like a big empty palm. Um, and I think it looks good when I, you know, as a student and it feels, you know, there, there are those things with the guitar that you think, uh, 
yeah, that looks like what a professional probably does. And you just kind of commit to it. <laughs> this is one of those things. Uh, lo and behold, I think that fostered a very tight palm, a very tight hand, um, and a very rigid sense of accuracy. Because if you don't look like you, have, you could hold an orange, and if you're not on the tip of your fingers, you're wildly off the mark, right? That's what happens with, with really with a technique like that, as I interpreted it. Not everyone interprets it that way. They're probably healthier than I am. Um, so in other words, I exploded that after the injury. And I said, I'm gonna play on the pads of my fingers. I'm gonna miss, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be okay with missing things. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just totally relax the palm of the hand. I'm not, it doesn't have to look like a showpiece or anything. And, and it's funny because we all have these little, uh, uh, you know, beliefs that go unquestioned sometimes for the, our whole lives is about the guitar and what oh, we're supposed sure. to do, right? I mean, I'm sure you've experienced that. For me, it was always like one finger per fret. <laughs> totally. Like if you're gonna do a bend, use your pinky on that. But then after a while I realized, wow, there's actually different tones between the different. Oh, totally different. It's not wrong to use the third finger on that. No, but, but, but well, it's, I forgive me, I don't mean to interrupt. You just got me so excited because I actually think what you're saying is really, really profound and important that um, just for, for us as guitar players to consider, which is that certain things look like they're going to sound good and certain things actually sound good. And often there's not a space built between the two. And, uh, and I think there's a lot of issues we have as guitar players, um, not getting the sound we like, not getting power, not getting speed, all these things that in my experience often lead back to some belief system that says, well, no, the hand looks more elegant when it's one finger per string, or no, you can't move your thumb because it's supposed to be where that little bump is on the back of the neck. Like says who, you know, it's all very arbitrary. Um, or, or it's derived from us watching other players who have completely different body types, you know, and different experiences of their sensuality on the instrument. Um, so um, anyway, I, I really appreciate hearing you give that example. Cause I think, I think we're not alone in this, man. You don't hear too many blues players with tendonitis problems. <laughs> Isn't that something, right? Uh, th there's something about that, man. Uh, I mean, if you watch Robin Ford, he's, he seems to use like almost like a Spock fingering. Yeah, I know. I was just watching a video of him, and I, I was noticing that very thing. Like he's using the first finger, and then the fourth finger is supported by. Absolutely. Well, let, just to just underline that, and, and you'll have to bear with me for being such an absolute, um, you know, nerd about this stuff. But I just have to jump in and say that one of the things about Robin Ford's mastery is, you know, look at his whole arm, look at his torso, look at his head and his neck, look at his legs. He's like, his whole stature as a guitarist is so grounded and uh, elegant and unified. You know, and, and, and I think that's one of the funny things about any technical considerations is that you don't have a hand without an arm. You don't have an arm without the spine and you don't have any of this without the force of gravity. And so we get into a lot of trouble, I think. In my experience, we get in a lot of trouble when we fetishize um, anything that's too micro. You know, I, I, I think that's what the, you know, watch B.B. King. You're not looking at B.B. King's left hand. You're really... You know, he's zoomed out, we can be zoomed out. And I think that sometimes fosters a healthier relationship. It can. That's just my experience with it. Now, back to intervals. I'm yes. always fascinated with these kind of six. Yeah. 
something like on this juicy blues tune booze blues off the new record which you have oh yeah so i don't know if we can expand into i would be glad to talk to you about that because it's 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 based on exactly what you just did uh the song's in the key of b flat and it's it's a it's a it's a bit of a, a triple stop it's three notes for the most part um a three note phrase that's kind of the centerpiece and that phrase is like this uh so cool um you know uh, it's it's very much related to what we were talking about before which is that you can develop a sense of playing that's a little less precious on the guitar that's a little smushier um and in this context you know i think there's there's already a, a precedent for um that kind of harmonic and gestural vocabulary within blues and jazz guitar you know that's kind of that's i'm not doing it justice to the um you know the originators of it but but we both know that that yeah that's connected to r&b guitar and funk guitar and um a lot of that so it gets kind of cool though once you start slipping and sliding through different harmonic i guess what's the word like um i want to say landscapes um where you can you take um like even that turnaround So it starts as kind of a, like a, I guess that's B flat six, kind of just a gestural thing, uh, uh, triple stop, but it morphs into playing triads diatonically through B flat, meaning, you know, if I were good, I kind of, yeah, so it's, so in other words, it's a little bit gestural and then it's a little bit literal and then it's a little bit gestural, a little bit literal. And, and I, I think that also has a connection to Jimmy Bryant who used to, you know, do all sorts of things like that. Um, I, I, what was that one phrase I remember? Things like that, where you're, <laughs> that stuff. you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying about like landscapes, right? You're hearing harmony, you're hearing development, you're hearing um, an evolution of the, 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 the harmonic properties. Um, but it's all couched within this very, um, I don't know, um, guitaristic, clustery sound. Um, and, and Booze Blues is just centered around that, you know? And then so, and you can extrapolate, obviously, once you improvise. So if, if the, the, the main thing is B flat mixolydian, in the solo, you could go. Thank you. 
so I, I, I mean, I'm just I'm pointedly just playing more than I want to, but just kind of shoving it in everywhere I can to show that that texture is kind of like a gateway into from single lines into reharmonization, um, and it's really really fun. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's fun to play that way. It feels very empowering as a guitar player to uh, switch between those uh, uh, orchestrations. It just, I can only imagine all the different directions you've studied. Like I've heard you mention Jimmy Bryant before. And I mean, it's such an irresistible style, that sort of country swing, Western swing. Yeah. So did you go that direction and then also into like bebop and also into like, you know, uh, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm a, I love, I love <laughs> this stuff. And, and you know, I, I, I know I have a heavily historical leaning perspective on it. I mean, just because I'm a fan, I, I happen to enjoy the, that, as my friend would call it, like a geoprismatic approach where you see there's something you want to learn how to do. And then you figure out all the other disciplines that also do a version of that. And you see how those other disciplines, you know, extrapolate. So like, just like you're saying, the, the world of Jimmy Bryan, Texas Swing and bebop guitar all share a lot in common. Um, one of the main things that they connect to is that they, they, they all developed alongside the development of the modern electric guitar. Um, and I would say that's probably a more direct and succinct answer to what you're talking to what you're asking, which is my interest in Jimmy Bryant was really stemming from saying, Hey, I play, I love Blackguard Telecasters and I love playing on the neck pickup. Who else does that? You know? And then you, what's so wonderful to me is that all roads lead back to Leo Fender and Jimmy Bryant being real partners in crime at those early stages, you know, with the broadcaster and Esquire and eventually Telecaster where, you know, Jimmy was like almost like a test guitar player for Leo and developed a language that was, developing alongside the sound of this instrument. Um, and, and kind of before rock and roll became what we think of with the Telecaster. Um, and so so I, I just, I'm really most interested in the marriage of the sound of the instrument with the, langu with the language. Um, and then furthermore, uh, it just so happens that Jimmy Bryant's pulling on bebop guitar language or be just bebop language from Bud Powell and, you know, Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. Um, and so I think I can connect to it musically from that perspective, because that's what I grew up studying and loving so much. Yeah. But it's it's really the marriage of the instrument and this, the language that I'm most fascinated with, more than accumulating um, yeah. just just knowledge about all styles. And just on the subject of Jimmy Wright, what was that? Do you remember the name of that one song? I... Oh, oh, that's uh, that's not Stratosphere Boogie, is it? No, it's called something else. It's like, e uh, I want to say East St. Louis Toodaloo, but it's not that. E it's something like that, though. I don't remember the name. It's amazing, isn't it? It's so good. Oh, you seem to be super devoted to improvisation, you know, as a yeah. as a way for your spirit to really get out there. And um, I think all guitarists and all musicians 
we learn licks, whether it's, you know, yeah, or I would say riffs or whether it's like, like phrases, but we're still, there's these riffs that even when you're improvising, yeah, we're often, I know I am, especially if I try to play jazz, I'm playing, doing a lot of the same riffs. Like I like turn around. Mm-hmm. How, how have you gotten out of playing riffs? Not that there's anything wrong with riffs. I love riffs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. How um, how do you get further and further away from that to actually like how much of improvisation is actually just we're choosing riffs that we know, maybe putting a little modification mm-hmm. on one or a mutation or something spontaneous happens and we follow that. And how much of it is just you're actually getting into a pure improvisation and you're not actually playing riffs? You Man, know. I, I it's the, that's the greatest question. And, and, I, and I, I'm often, uh, I don't know if surprised is the right word, but I'm really conscious of the fact that no, it doesn't get talked about a lot, this difference. You know, it's um, with a lot of educational things that we're trying to do, whether it be improvisation or rhythm guitar or any other nuanced you know sector of the guitar cultivated guitar world um there's often a lot of urgency and a lot of pressure like you want to improvise well you need to improvise now and i think um that's great and at the same time i think it might force the hand of some guitar players towards riffs or licks because um you know they, they might be under the impression that i need to generate something that doesn't suck And the way to do something that doesn't suck is to use something that's not my own, but is functional. It's not the greatest thing I can play, but it's not the worst. And, um, you know, before you know it, sometimes you find yourself in a situation where you've collected all these riffs and they started as kind of a survival mechanism, but now you're X number of years into it and you don't know how to let go of them. You don't know what to replace them with. Um, and it begs the question, was it so urgent to begin with? You know, was it so urgent that you needed like a, a survival mechanism? Now, uh, the reason I say that is because I have a lot of empathy for that type of learning. And it's just so popular. Um, turnarounds. How do you play over changes? Well, here's a line. Here's, here's This will do it, you know. Um, for me, I, you know, I, I, I am not that good at learning riffs and lines for whatever reason. I, I've tried. I've like when I was growing up, I'd learn things and I... I kind of, and I say with there's this isn't even from a point of um, I'm not being coy or facetious. I I kind of don't I don't do well with remembering something and then repeating it. And uh, I, I it's all, it's always been hard for me. Well, I thought um, that, like all of us naturally would start with riffs and kind of go out there. But you're saying you didn't really. I didn't. I I I I I would if I could, man. <laughs> it's like it's actually I, I that's the funny thing is I think it's actually a really complicated ability to use mimicry as the foundation of development like that's actually a very that's i mean even your own riffs that you come up with like like i couldn't so when you first learned how to play over yeah 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 you were just purely improvising or well well check it out no when i've you know as a sidebar i i think and and we'll talk about this because i think it's embedded in what you were just asking um you you were explicit but we can go it's definitely within everything you're saying which is um you know, is there a puritanical sense of what's improvised and what's not? And very simply, no, nothing. It's not that precious. Um, some improvisers use predetermined things and they find new inventive ways to use them. Famous, wonderful 
jazz heroes do that, you know. Um, other people have a way of seeming like they generate new content every time they touch the instrument. That's amazing. And then there is everything in between and beyond, you know. When I first learned that progression, my dad showed me, we did in the key of A and he showed me, this was the first day of playing guitar. It's actually really funny you played what you played because the very first thing I learned was, it was, it was that and, and uh, oh no, no, it actually, forgive me, it was from Rage, Ray Charles. And then I learned the day trip one. But the same day my dad said, okay, there's a thing called the A, pentatonic scale and here's where you play it and he showed me that shape and he said i'm going to play meaning him he said he was going to play uh, a blues in a and all he said was anything you play in that scale and whenever you play it is right as long as it's within that scale um and he said let's go and so then he would you know and, and then I would and I would I would just pick different combinations of those notes. We did that for a while, you know, a uh, month or whatever it was. And then he said, OK, well, here's the next part. And, and keep in mind, what's so sweet to me about all of this is that my dad started playing the guitar about the same time I did. So he would go to the lessons and then come home and show me and we'd, we'd work on it together. So he said, OK, you know that scale we did? If you move it up a little bit, you have um, basically an inversion of it, a different shape. And So I'm playing the same scale, but rather than starting on the first note, I'm starting on the second note of it, which puts me a few frets higher. And then, you know, this is that whole kind of um, system of how you can organize a scale up and down the neck. So you'd say, now anything you play within those two scales, two shapes, you know, of that scale is right. And any, anything you play out of these three boxes is right. And, and we just kind of kept growing. So um, that's how it's, that's how that started for me. I, I, it was, it was all it was just really focused on make some make a different combination every time. So you could almost argue that for me, the riff was just the actual note in the scale. Like I, I'm going to use in an A pentatonic scale, I'm going to use A, D, A, C, D, E, G and A. I'm going to use those a lot. And I'm just going to change the order. And for someone else, instead of having five notes, they might have five riffs and they use those five riffs in different orders. Um, but I do think that's kind of a slick thing for beginning improvisers is to just really look at each note as a riff and put it in front of another note, put it after. And, but, but, but brother, I cannot stress this enough. It's like, and then just do that over and over and over again. You know, uh, I, I think that starts to build a foundation that's not so um, restrictive to any one line. Yeah, you don't really find yourself repeating yourself. <laughs> That often, no, or, or arguably, all you do is repeating you repeat yourself because in terms of the notes and 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 you know there's x how what's there's some calculation for how many permutations of five there are, but it's a lot, right? So you definitely get more for your money if you're playing with five notes than if you're playing with five riffs. I think as a beginning improviser, um, you know, you mentioned did I ever then kind of hold on to anything I was doing and repeated that? That's where again I, I have there's a certain deficiency. Um, I love how you call it a deficiency. <laughs> well, it's uh, other people. <laughs> I, I, I do. I really, I have friends who have, you know, uh, more photographic memory of things and they can do it and they can repeat it. I can't play the same thing twice. And I never have been so good at that. Um, but you know, my attention goes elsewhere, but, but yeah, riffs are good. I think, let me just say this though. I think the notion that you can have a, a constellation of licks 
that you're somehow going to abandon and in place get freedom. I think that model might have issues. Um, I love your word choice, man. I don't repeat myself. I have a constellation of lips. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what it is, right? Oh, I love it, man. I I mean, I I think it's really, I mean, and I put 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 I put it this way. It's like I, I give the benefit of the doubt to any practicing musician that they chose these things because they like them. And I and I think once you start suppressing things that you like because someone said they're you're not supposed to like them, you're really in trouble. So may you have a hundred licks that you think are the greatest in the world. But but to think that the opposite of licks is freedom is I think inaccurate. I think you have to that that's like having the bottom the rug pulled out from under a player. Um, so the way I see it is you can play licks. You can enjoy them. You can hitch your whatever to that, um, or in its place, you could hitch your boat to a scale and say any notes you play are right. Um, you can, if that's not sufficient, you say I'm, I forget the notes, forget the scale. I'm just going to hitch my improvisational tether to a rhythmic subdivision, and anything I play is right. Like you, I think I think that one of the misnomers about impro- improvisation when we're first getting into it is that it's kind of will like it's just like um it's like the wild west like any anything goes and it's so free and it's man the great improvisers i've known in my life have the most sincere strategies about how to do it and they're so focused on how to generate conditions that produce healthy improvisations can you demonstrate some uh, strategies that you might if you were practicing well let me see i mean there's yeah, there's. Uh, and I wish I could accompany you, but the Zoom latency. But no, you're fine. I know, of course. It's, uh, let, let's let's think about this for a second. Um, the simplest thing is if you were in a, a blues, right? And you were to limit yourself to um, three notes. You can use A, you can use E, and you can use G sharp, right? Um, I, I would say, let's see what happens if we, with no, no other cues, we just say the strategy is we predetermine your notes. You don't have to worry about generating ideas or licks or whether you should or not, or the moral quandaries of whether you're an improviser. Like that's too much baggage. You get three notes, go to town. And it might sound like this. One, two, three, four. Right away, what I noticed is that I totally lied, right? I said the only boundaries are these notes. However, there was also a variation of note duration. Some were short, some were long. There was a variation in volume. Some notes were quiet, some notes were louder, some were medium volume. There was also slides. So fluctuation of intonation via slide. There was also bends, which changes the intonation. So right away, you realize that, oh, if I'm aware that these are all the parameters that I'm able to tweak, let me really just exhaust the possibilities. And let's say, let's actually loosen up that original strategy of only saying three notes and just say, um, we're going to limit it to the top two strings. How about that? 
right? So now, so okay, yeah, because whether it's up or down a half step, the notes, it doesn't matter. So the, I can play a solo on the high B and the high E. Um, not that there's a low B, but the, the B and the high E. And I just need to exploit volume, note duration, and, and bends or slides. So I'll say, here we go again. One, two, uh, one. So, right, so I, I made a different solo. That's the kind of thing that I used to play around with a lot. I still do, of like taking stock of what parameters you're interfacing with, then trying iterations of it, seeing what you like. And, and I have to say that though an example or a strategy like that, one in which you find something, then you exploit it. That's all it is. It's just kind of a study and exploitation. Let me do more of that. Let me do less of that. Let me do more of that. Um, absolutely benefits from a knowledge of scales and harmony and the tradition of you know jazz music that we love but it's also these are just kind of human improvisational games they're not necessarily musical improvisational games you know what i mean it's kind of like saying here's three colors and it's a it's coloring book stuff um and i think that's also encouraging for someone who wants to get improvisation just remember that the study of improvisation does not implicate you into music theory it doesn't implicate you into being a jazz musician. It's it's literally it's a, its own art form, you know. Um, it's the same thing great comedians have, great you know um, athletes have, great I any mean, greatness, great chefs have it. So um, you know we should call a spade a spade that that's that's not actually jazz doesn't own it, you know. And that's why it's always baffling me when people say oh, I got to learn all my scales before I can improvise because that's like saying you need to learn all your scales before you can cook a, an omelet. It doesn't make any sense. Yes, many of the greatest players never learned to scale. Yeah, and they're the greatest improvisers. Did Charlie Christian really study scales? I don't know. Yeah, he that guy was the deepest. I mean, and and what what I love about Charlie Christian is that we hear him and we just say that sounds like great music, you know, and 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 we don't care if it was a scale to him. We don't care if it was a lick to him. We don't care. We don't have to care about how people learn this stuff. We we just need to know if we like it or not. It just feels so good. It should feel good, you know. And, and you'd be surprised by that. And I'm, I, I, I'll stop. But I'm. You just got me so excited about this guy. I really think about this a lot. Is that I, in the in the efforts to become a good, you know, literate jazz improvising musician, um, and guitar player, we often suppress our taste, you know. I remember that going to music school and at a certain point going, I don't know what I like anymore. I just know what I'm supposed to know, you know? And then you would run it and then I'd show something to someone who was not a music student and they go, oh, I love it or I hate it. And I think, oh, they're so profound. They're so, how do they, how? <laughs> and you go, oh, right, I have that. Every human has that intuition. We just, you know, sometimes it gets obscured and we ignore it. Now, can I ask you about this uh, little break, this lick in uh, another one of the songs that has been released, which is Familiar Flower. Oh, yeah. 18 seconds. And I would describe this as, I don't know, it's like a huge melodic leap and maybe displacement. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I can, I, I can only imagine that it's this, the, the familiar flower goes, the first phrase is. Mm -hmm. 
Is it that one? That's the first kind of one. That's one that jumps out of my wheelhouse. Like I'm yeah. type of playing. Yeah. Well, tell me, what is that? Like as another guitar player, I'm yeah. literally like, to me it sounds like a, almost like very pianistic in a beautiful way. Like to be able to jump around like that so fluidly. But, but what are you going for? What, where's, where's that come from and where's it going? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great question. It's, it's um, you know, there's a a very rich tradition of uh, improvising musicians, you know, kind of centered around Ornette Coleman and including Paul Blay, the great piano player, Dewey Redmond, Don Cherry, um, Sonny Rollins, absolutely. Um, and and, and it, it goes on and on and on. But if we're specifically talking about the music of Ornette Coleman and, and the, the style of, of music, um, in a kind of an academic way, what you'll run into with a lot of those musicians is that there's in a given 10 second period, you'll see a great variation in speed. And a lot of times what dictates the speed of a song is the speed of the song, right? If you say, you know, ba ba da ba da ba da 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 the speed is da 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 So more often than not, anything I do is either going to be you know, it's gonna be some version of dun 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 dun. Maybe it's maybe it's um maybe it's all that stuff is they're triplets, eighth notes, sixteenth notes, chord notes, but it's to that tempo. What that crew pointedly shows us is that you don't have to have an allegiance to the tempo and then choose a subdivision. So in this case, if you have that's an explicit phrase in the tempo of the next part is a much faster tempo i mean if you would actually write that out in the tempo of it's so it's, so if, it, if it's probably instead of bum 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 that tempo for that phrase is really that's where the eighth note, da, 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 that's where the 16th note is. So what's cool to me about that is there's something that's very irrational. There's the, you state one tempo, something that says for the tempo of the song, and then you play a phrase that's really lives in a completely different tempo and doesn't have to be reconciled with the, the other tempo. It's not like a subdivision or a double time. I mean, some, it, you could, it can be written as a subdivision on some point. The point is that I'm completely just speed. I'm just playing fast. I play the tempo, then I play too fast, then I play the tempo. That's illegal. You can't do that. <laughs> uh, that's well. You one would think, you know, because there's so much rational behavior with improvised music, you know, and and you listen to any of those masters I'm talking about. I mean, Don Cherry, for goodness' sake, if you're not familiar, the way he plays. His phrases, it's, <clears throat> it's, there's often four or five different tempos from phrase to phrase. There'll be a slow one, a fast one, a medium one, a really fast one, a really slow one. And what I love about it is that though it might seem on paper like that would feel jerky because you're kind of moving and, you know, ebbing and flowing with the tempo of the phrase, often what it does is it makes the original tempo all that much 
clearer, the boom, 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 because now you've introduced something that challenges it. And I, and in my, I don't know about you, but in my experience, when there's a tempo and then something contradicts the tempo, my ear goes back to the original tempo and goes, wait, was that legal? Like you're saying, and I actually have more of a, I'm clear about how fast we were moving to begin with. You know, it's, it's, it's like you're driving in a car and all of a sudden you slam on the brakes and you didn't realize how fast you were going. Um, there's inertia and that's the property of inertia with music. Um, that's one attribute. The other part, just like you were, you know, as guitar players, just sitting here talking. Um, there, there's something going on there where you're having duplicates, you know. Yeah. Which I think, if you took that as its own um, study. Yeah, you're playing. You're playing for anyone. You're playing one note on two different strings. Yeah, and that that's, you know. Uh, you can have that I'm, if you've ever played around with that there there are those fun things on the guitar like um you know i asked mike stern about that once because he oh, really? he has this great solo where he's like totally oh yeah and a swinging against it i was like he compared it to saxophones false yep. fingerings he yeah, calls them false, like he's imitating a sax where they do the two different ways of playing the same note. It's the coolest thing in the world. And you hear a lot, it's totally false <laughs> fingers and a lot of players do it. Everyone, I mean, it's, it's, it's even, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's not, it's, you hear it a lot in, in West African music in West Africa, someone like Lina Loweke, great, greatest guitar player ever. He's, uh, he was the first guy I knew who was really incorporating a lot of that false fingering thing in improvisation. Um, uh, but it's also, it's also can be found in, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, the double, uh, two, same note, two different strings is all over the history of the guitar. Um, in this particular case, I think it's, there's that. And then there's, you know, another beloved guitar technique, at least to me, which is sweeping. When sweeping is still one of those otherworldly phenomenons. It's just, it just makes me smile every time I see anyone do it. It's just, wow, you, you moved a little, you got a lot of notes. It's very impressive, you know? Um, so I, 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 you know, I, I think those are a few of the things that are going on. And, and, and if there was anything to be taken away from it, by me, like if I even as I look at that and I was writing the tune, I was like, what is going on here? How do you know you have to know what you've got in order to develop it into a song? My sense was, okay, this is a study in super variety in a short period of time. So in the first 20 seconds, you get at least two different tempos, you get false fingerings, and you get sweeping, and over the course of two and a half octaves. That's a lot more information than I'm accustomed to putting in 20 seconds. But it's, I, I found it so, I was so charmed by it. I thought, man, it sounds, it's not too much, is it? It's just enough. Rad. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks for inspiring me to be, to go illegal sometimes. You can go it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't, don't, don't let anything be unquestioned as far as the rules. Definitely not. Now, you, you know, I hate to put labels on people, but if you're a jazz player, but you do have yeah. Bigsby on your guitar, is that your, <laughs> your new signature, Collins? Yeah, this is my new signature. 
Yeah, how do you use the Bigsby? Uh, well, I, you know what I do is I tuck it away and I never touch it. <laughs> but I, I just love the sound of Bigsby's. Like I, I, anyone familiar with Bigsby's knows they add mass and weight to the guitar oh. um, in, a different, in addition to vibrato. We had this guitar without a Bigsby and it was great, but it was too light, I think, for all of our tastes. It was like oh. 5.2 pounds. It was so light. It was such a light... You, you know, and that's why it's so great. Adding the Bigsby gave it a little bit of a substantial quality um, in the, I'd say around the fundamental of the notes, things started sounding more direct uh, when we added the Bigsby. That's the last thing I was going to expect you to say. I thought you, thought you were going to say you use it once in a while. When you say you like the sound of it, but you like literally the sound of the mass that it has. I like the sound of the mass the and the sound of this big chunk of metal, you know, because there's wood. This is a somewhat hollow guitar, but there's lots of wood in the guitar. And then there's a piece of metal on the outside. And it's 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 just kind of a great combination. Um, I can't tell if it's painted or if it's a spruce top. This is a spruce top. That's, that's just a natural finish. And um, I love this guitar so much. And it's... Um, you know, my my someday I'll utilize the Bigsby more. I, I every so often I I do touch it, but um. Do you enjoy oh, changing I, the I, strings on it? How do you? I used to have a Bigsby, and I got finally figured out how to change change strings on that Bigsby where you need three arms and you only have two. At least most of us only have two. Man, yeah, please teach me that because at the moment it's my wife and I once a month changing. She holds one end, and I string the, oh. through the the headstock. Yeah, I don't. You can desperation. Broken string. Yeah, I think it's it's. Oh, <laughs> I, I I I think if a string breaks on stage and I don't have another guitar, we should just cancel the show because I don't. I'm not. I I I've really been working on it for two years and I'm. But you know whatever. No, that that, that beat as it may. Um, uh, I, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. <laughs> Back to me buying a Strymon at Sam Ash yesterday. I was talking yes. to Sal over there who does great guitar tech he works there and he happened to be working on a bigsby and he said that he's he uses a tool i don't know what it is there's some little g gadget that you can just for guys who really yeah that that holds it on there it's made i guess i don't know i'll try to find out what that is but i would love to know that you know yeah you gotta get one of those as a as a present i should do i should do it i know i i um I've, growing up i changed my strings you know more than anybody should i was you know once for every show i had a new set of strings so that could be every day and then I just didn't like dead strings as much. And then I've, with this guitar and also the Telecasters I've played, I've, I've enjoyed leaving strings on longer. So so long as the intonation isn't totally botched. Um, I, maybe, you know what I think it is? I think I've been playing brighter guitars that can afford to have a little bit more of the high end killed. Yeah, there you go. And tell us about that amp. Is that your champ back there? I'm seeing an old tweed. Yeah, I have an old, this is, a, this is the one we bought that, was kind of designated as Margaret's, my, my wife's amp. And I want to say that's a 59. One of them is a 58, one's a 59. This might be a 58. And I have a 59 that I use um, that I love. They're, they're, they're kind of, uh, they're, they're almost interchangeable. They're both so good. They're both so good. And, um, you know, I, I, I like practicing with a champ a lot. It's very... One is the volume; it's not terribly loud, but I, the compression. The you know, it's it's. I'm a sucker for the way it just sounds like a record, you know, just kind of right off the bat. That's great. And your wife is a musician too, I take it. Yes, Margaret Glaspie is my wife, and a brilliant songwriter and guitar player and producer, and and just you know, 
I, I, I feel very fortunate. We've been, we've been like partners in, in crime for so many years. Um, and then, uh, more newly married, but, but, uh, yeah, she's, she's absolutely brilliant. And we, and we share equipment and kind of try things out and, you know, what do you think of this? Do you want that one? You should take that one. I'll take this one, you know, stuff like that. Uh, so it's fun. Very cool. What part of New York do you guys live in? You currently we're in lower Manhattan. Um, but we're in the process of looking to, to buy a home nearby, maybe just outside of the city. Uh, just cause New York's, you know, New York's our home. It's our community and our hub. And, uh, we lived in Nashville at the, uh, around June of 2020. So early in the pandemic, we were living in Brooklyn and we thought, you know what, this would be a good time to be in a house where we can maybe be around less people. Uh, and we went to Nashville and it was, we had connections there and a friend said, yeah, live in our house. We, it was wonderful. We wrote music for 10 months and just lived a, a more calm lifestyle. It was great. And then as things started opening up, we were like, okay, we got to get back East. Fantastic. I love New York city. I used to live there when I was four or five. Get out. Were you born here? I feel like I was. But yeah. Basically. I mean, at that age, you're, that's, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I used to live right next to Washington Square Park, and uh, used to we that we kids used to swim in that fountain. Can you believe? <laughs> wow! You could survive that. I just meant yes. that'll make that'll make you stronger. Yeah, exactly. You got a strong immune system now. So tell us about your master classes that you offer and you do, and and what do you like to teach in those? And well, absolutely, gladly. I mean, to me, education is. Uh, it's something I've been very fortunate to be on the receiving end of, you know, <laughs> that's a good a roundabout way of saying it, but it's true. I've, I've just, I, 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 I so cherish the relationship of teachers and students. And, and, and also I furthermore, I cherish this relationship that says we are really in it together. You know, it's not, um, it's not like one person has all the answers and then everyone needs to just listen and nod and go, that's okay. I guess that's what I should be doing. No, it's, it's totally interactive. And, um, and frankly, the online platform of teaching masterclasses is conducive to that, right? Because we have people from around the world who um, are able to be part of a bigger conversation where it really proves that it's not clicky. It's not about only certain people have access to certain things are able to get the information. It's It wasn't mine to begin with. It's it's I just happen to be kind of almost like an air traffic controller for it in certain ways. Um, and more importantly, I'm, I'm a student, right? So I, we've hosted these master classes, quite a few of them that have been centered around a topic. You know, there was a couple that were just about phrasing. There were some ones just about improvisation, ones just about composition, ones just about practicing, ones just about technique. And we, you know, I, I'll share things that I'm thinking about at the beginning, but the, the, the lion's share of the class involves students coming up on screen and playing for me and everybody. Um, and I just think that's kind of, the coolest part, you know, because our community as a whole is so supportive and loving and curious, you know, so when you have cats playing and then they have other friends or people, strangers, they don't know saying you sound great. And, you know, wow. And you just see that you just see everyone remember that. Yeah, we're just in it together. And I, and I have the very fortunate and privileged position of just being the facilitator. And um, so that's what they are. They exist. You can list. I think you can sign up to all the ones that have happened already and watch them kind of pay-per-view style. And then as far as our prospects going forward, um, we have a, I started a site last year called guitar.study and it was pointedly uh, dedicated, is pointedly dedicated to the interaction between 
music education and social justice. So in other words, we offer private lessons in these classes and then portions of the proceeds um, go to uh, different foundations dealing with ending systemic racism, women's reproductive rights in the South, climate change. And um, those are the three areas of interest we've been putting you know, our attention. What are the names of some of those foundations? I think well, they've just changed, but I want to say it's Color of Change was one of them. Uh, Sisters of, and I always mess it up because again, we've, we've since changed some of these, but a, a wonderful organization in the South that deals with women's reproductive rights. That is awesome. Um, and then for climate change, I, again, that one we just switched as well. We work with, a, we work with a wonderful company early on called RPM, Revolutions Per Minute. And they've now morphed into a different name, but they're, they're kind of like, um, what would you call it? Like, they, they, they're like liaisons for musicians to get involved with social justice. And they'll do things like um, say, okay, we've picked these, they, they develop an account where money can be sent. And then they'll say, We're, we've been looking at them, everything. And we feel like these uh, ground, ground, you know, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Ground root? What is it? What is Grass what you roots. say from the ground up? Grassroots. Thank you. <laughs> these grassroots foundations would really benefit right now because they've experienced this and we, and so they kind of act as the traffic controller for where the money can go and we agree upon it. And then they also added, they helped us generate something where a dollar for every ticket we sell to our shows um, also goes to these foundations. So it, it bleeds over to the live performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so if anyone's interested, that's the site, guitar.study. Oh, you, did you uh, mess with the <laughs> mess with, I believe you studied the Alexander technique, which yeah. a lot of people don't know about, but I being also from the Bay area, I definitely met some people. I'm sure. And, uh, that's a way of, I don't yeah. know if you can even touch it in one sentence or two, but you know, absolutely. Alexander technique is a, is a movement, kind of like a movement rehabilitation modality. Um, and what that means is a hundred or so years ago, this guy, FM Alexander, who was a, an actor, in Tasmania, um, he figured out, he was having physical difficulties. He was losing his voice when he would recite uh, Shakespeare. And he was, you know, he, he started getting really curious about what he was up to physically um, and uh, psychophysically, meaning what's he's thinking, what he, you know, what's he up to in his thoughts when he feels the thing in his body? Uh, what, what's going on that leads to him losing his voice and having these ailments? Um, what spawned from that was a whole, uh, technique about um, cultivating what they call kinesthetic awareness. Kinesthesis is your sense of movement that's internal. Um, You know, if you closed your eyes and raised your left hand, you would know it's your left hand, even if you weren't looking at it, because why? Your kinesthetic awareness. It's spatial awareness. Proprioception is part of that, too. Um, One of the unique features of an Alexander technique lesson, you know, is that it's a lesson. It's not a treatment. Um, so you would go to an Alexander teacher, like you'd go to a piano teacher and they would watch you walk, move, pick something up, play the guitar, do whatever it is you do. And you could say, well, I'm having these issues with my neck and I get headaches or my, my wrist is always sore, whatever it is. And they could say, well, let's consider moving in a different way. And they, they usually do it with some sort of guidance with their hands. You know, the teacher can rest a hand on your neck or on your back or whatever. And, um, go about teaching you how the technique informs movement. So I I got into it because of Gary Burton, who I played with um, from a young age. And Gary just, I think out of the blue, said it to me. He said, you know, if, I think I was asking him about speed on the guitar and on the vibraphone. I was just saying, how do you, 
if you haven't seen Gary Burton play, it's he's one of the most fluid and beautiful players. You know, he looks like it the way the music sounds. Um, and I just said, what's the deal, man? You're you're so graceful, and it seems like there's not even a. It's not like you have to relax. It's like you're 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 thinking about this thing differently. And he said, well, it's this thing called the Alexander technique I studied um, years ago. I think Gary, I, the thing to keep in mind is that. The Alexander technique doesn't propose anything that the body doesn't already do naturally. So if you saw a toddler stumbling around, uh, but kind of walking, kind of falling, the poise that that toddler possesses is a good example of what the Alexander technique is trying to help us regain. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's not about fashioning a new posture. It's not. It's kind of um, letting go of things that might get in the way. So Gary was always, I think, actually a very free moving person. Um, and still is, but as a player, the technique kind of fortified that in his his playing. And he told me about it. I said, "Oh, I got to check it out." And I started taking lessons. I loved it. I felt taller. I felt lighter. I felt freer. And then I started training to become a teacher of it because I just wanted to understand it and teach my students. Um, and ironically, it was after all of that that I injured myself. <laughs> so because you can still mess yourself up, you know, um, but. Thank goodness for the tools because it helped me rehabilitate. So I, I don't know what I would have done without it. You know, I I had a conscious awareness and a language around movement that was you know greatly helpful in facilitating recovery. And and that that's kind of what the Alexander technique does. It gives us a way to talk about the way we move. That's great. Yeah, trying to get the innocence of movement, just like we're in parallel trying to get the innocence of musical curiosity as well, oh, brother bingo it's 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 very similar that's, that's why a lot of musicians flock to it i think there's a certain uh mutual respect between the communities and i think if you're any kind of ergonomics or alexander aware person you'd look at like a klein guitar or strandberg and be that's how all should all guitars should. <laughs> yeah well, <laughs> well it's, it's, it's a great point you know there's there's i look at it two ways you know one is that we can tackle i should say a different way you we can reconcile our physical relationship with an instrument by changing the instrument and we can reconcile it by um bringing awareness to how we move with the instrument and maybe there's a third way which is both you know um i love playing vintage instruments and instruments that historically are not the easiest to play old acoustics old you know Les Paul's old, what are you name it? I mean, there's a lot of great guitars that famously have giant necks that are heavy, that are this, that, or the other. Um, for that reason, I've always loved incorporating the Alexander technique because I never felt like it was the guitar's fault that the movement wasn't going well. You, 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 obviously, we have preferences. I like a V. You like a C shape neck. It doesn't. That's that's to taste. But but as far as um, the interaction with the guitar, that that's a fluid relationship. This is, I, I should point out too, um, that this, this kind of speaks to a, the, the pillar of Alexander technique, which has to do with something called inhibition. Um, and inhibition is not meant in the Freudian sense of be free of your inhibitions. Um, but actually, it, it stems from language about the nervous system. And if you talk to anyone who's into anatomy, they'll tell you that the, the nervous system has two modes uh, in a simplistic form as um, excitation and inhibition, meaning um, if I want to raise my left arm, 
I need to excite the nervous system in a way that raises the left arm. And if I, and, and but, but, but what I, the Alexander technique points out and a lot of other modalities too, it's not proprietary, is that at the same time you excite certain things, you also have to, the nervous system is inhibiting other responses. So in, in other words, uh, for me to stay here and talk to you, I'm exciting all the nervous system stuff that goes with that, but my system's also inhibiting my, um, any impulse to walk away. We don't think about that, but we have to. I have to not walk away in order to stay here. I won't keep you here that long, Julian. No, 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 no. Yeah, you're gonna. You're not gonna be able to get rid of me. I'll stay with you all week. But, but that's the nervous system. How that works. So Alexander did something hip where he said he kind of understood that if we're not careful, that sounds too precious. Forget careful. But let's just say this way: uh, if if we don't have awareness around it. Um, we can blur the line between impulse and excitation. And what that means is that if I have the impulse to play the guitar uh, and my way of playing the guitar is I get really tense and hold my breath. Well, every time I get the impulse to play the guitar, I'm going to get tense and hold my breath. And he would talk about inhib inhibition, which means at the moment you recognize, oh, I'm about to play the guitar. In the most simplistic format, he would say, just pause. And notice how your system that just was about to lurch into its habitual way of being tight and whatever, notice how the system can kind of reorient or maybe you drop those shoulders or maybe you take an inhalation or maybe you put your feet on the ground and then you play the guitar. So you're inhibiting consciously um, what he would call the stereotypical reaction. The stereotypical reaction being that I just play and I'm tight and I'll deal with it later. I found that to be so helpful to think about building a space between the thing I want to do and how I'm going to go about doing it. And it can be one second, it can be three seconds, it can be immediate, it can be not at all. But um, that, that inhibitive quality is kind of what I think allows us to play difficult instruments in a free way. Because just because I'm playing a guitar that's supposedly hard to play doesn't mean I need to have a habitual reaction that says, well, then I got to muscle my way through it, right? I can pick up a 1945 J45 and go, yeah, I could squeeze this or I could pause. Go, oh, I can work a little less and bingo. Now I'm in the game. So with that's, that's all I call, I'll leave it there. We could talk all day about it. Very interesting. I just, you just got a thousand percent more knowledge about it. Thank you. <laughs> of course. Well, it's been great talking to you today, Julian. Thank you, man. Keep it alive till you're 95. I mean, I could. <laughs> God willing. Yeah, everything. I mean, we barely scratched the surface with what you do on guitar. And uh, even when you're just comping or you're, you're doing the, you're doing the three notes improvisation exercise, but you're doing this, the blues thing underneath. It's so yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I'm so appreciative for you taking the space and time to talk about this. It's an ongoing conversation. And, and I just, I, uh, I cherish this a lot, man. So thanks for having me. Thank you. And can you, anything you've been playing lately or noodling that you can take us out, a little fade out? <sighs> Let me see. I've just been playing with different harmonies that kind of, uh, well, I'll just, I'll just, just, just kind of my, my usual interest. So I'll play you something, uh, improvisation.
Man, that was beautiful. I should have just let you play for an hour. Just, <laughs> just sit back. That's a... Well, you could have got an hour of practicing in, and the rest of us could have just <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> enjoyed the show. Fantastic, man. Thank Great you so God. much. Blue guitar is safe.